This call is being recorded. Uh, welcome to Sustainable Business Friday, hosted by the students of the Bard MBA in Sustainability. Today, we're going to be speaking with Silda Wall-Spitzer, Director and Principal of New World Capital Group. And uh, my name is Jeff Leatherwood. I'm a proud alum of the program. I graduated last May, and I'm currently in New York City working at the Ford Foundation. Sustainable Business Friday airs twice monthly and features sustainability leaders from around the world and across a multitude of sectors. The series is available after the call via podcasts, and edited transcripts appear in GreenBiz, and I can tell you they are a fascinating read. So on today's call, Amy Kalafa will be interviewing Silda Walspitzer. Amy, uh, you and I crossed over in our in our time at Bard. We had a couple classes together, and um, if I'm not mistaken, you are uh, on the brink of uh, graduating the program. Yes, I'll be graduating in just a couple of weeks, and um, <clears throat> I'm excited and looking forward to the next phase of my career. Excellent. So what? I, now, the second year of the Bard MBA program, which is a, a partial residency program, um, which for me was game-changing because it allowed me to continue to work while I was going through the program. And the second year, students do a capstone project. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about what your capstone project is? Uh, sure, Jeff. So my background is as a, a filmmaker and sustainable food advocate. And so I'm I'm taking the skills that I've learned through the BART MBA and really combining them into um, – it's a new business, but doing some things that I've done in the past with two partners uh, in Connecticut, where I'm located. It's called Sustainable Biz Solutions. And we focus on strategy, storytelling, and events. And what we're doing is creating a, a sustainable business ecosystem in Connecticut, trying to unite all the small and medium-sized sustainable and local and mission-driven businesses with the larger corporations um, that exist in Connecticut. And we do this by hosting events on-site at the corporations that um, people can meet these vendors and kind of cross-pollinate, and it, it really helps the local economy and helps get employees of big businesses connected to sustainability. So um, it's a startup, and it's fun, and that's what I'm going to be presenting at my capstone in a couple of weeks. Well, that sounds great. And um, let me know uh, as soon as you're hiring. Um, I would love <laughs> yeah. to work for, for a business like that. So let me know. All right. I can't wait. I'll let you know. <laughs> and with that, I'll hand it off to you to get the conversation going. Okay. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm very, very excited to have Silda Wall Spitzer with us today. I'll tell you a little bit about her. And um, so she's a director and principal at New World Capital Group, a private equity firm investing in, in the environmental opportunities sector. Her focus is primarily on business development and deal origination for both growth and infrastructure project investments, and she will explain what that entails during this interview. As First Lady of New York State, Ms. Wall Spitzer worked in the areas of youth services and education, women's and human rights, and also in support of the administration's goal of reducing fossil energy consumption by 15% by 2015. Prior to her role as First Lady, she was the founder and executive director of the not-for-profit Children for Children. Currently, she's vice chair of the Urban Green Council, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Economics Club of New York, the New York State and New York City Bar Associations, the Series President's Council, and an advisor to the board of the Sustainable Endowments Institute, along with other board appointments. Ms. Wall-Spitzer is co-founder and CEO of NewYorkStatesOfMind.com, which is the first private statewide digital magazine marketplace. And Ms. Wall-Spitzer is also a frequent speaker on topics related to impact investing and sustainability, as well as women's leadership and financial literacy. And she holds a JD from Harvard Law School. So, Silda, welcome to the Bard MBA Sustainable Fridays podcast. Well, thank you so much, Amy and Jeff. It's really a pleasure to, to join you today. So you have really covered the trifecta of sustainability in your career, people, planet, and profits. 
Uh, we have a lot to talk about, and I'd like to start just by asking you to reach back a bit and share with us what got you on the path to working in sustainable business. Uh, Amy, I, I feel very fortunate to have been able to work uh, in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors uh, towards building sustainability. Now, to me, sustainability means uh, leaving our world in at least as good a shape as we found it for our children and for the generations beyond that. And that means building healthy, strong, resilient community uh, from individuals to our planet. I um, was not introduced formally to the sustainability movement as such until I was first lady, and then it was specifically in the context of the environment about which we will be speaking most today. Um, but interestingly, I realized that I had already been living a corner of the sustainable community movement for the previous decade through my work with Children for Children. Our mission there was to encourage children of all backgrounds uh, in service and volunteering from an early age in order to help them uh, become the next generation that would care about and uh, would also develop them as individuals and as part of their communities. So what we were so dedicated and why we were so dedicated to that is because service really changes a child's world from me to we. Uh, it provides crucially important experiential, social and emotional learning that develops empathy, judgment, values, and a sense of purpose, problem solving, and critical thinking. Uh, it fosters better academic performance. It helps kids make the decisions to avoid bad behaviors. Uh, and as they become adults, they become um, engaged more than others typically in their community, in civic leadership, uh, in, and in philanthropy. Plus, they also pass this on to their kids, so it becomes a multi-generational kind of, of ethos. It costs very little, and it really is the key, I believe, to um, to building a stronger and sustainable world among the people here. And with this mindset, um, the kids understand the importance, among other things, of respecting their environment, so not polluting, protecting our resources. Otherwise, the natural balance of our ecosystem shifts and becomes toxic and unable to support society as we know it. So the connection between individuals engaging in service and the sustainability movement in the environmental sense um, is crucial once you examine it. So for me personally, the sustainable environment is the foundation stone for our world as we know it. And that is why I really have dedicated so much of my attention there, whether it's in the role of nonprofit, uh, in the public sector, or in the private space. Um, with respect to why I've been working on the for-profit side of the aisle since I was first lady, I believe that while nonprofit efforts and government bring extremely important components, the enormous amount of capital that's needed to shift us to a clean economy can only be provided by the capital markets, the ones that are agnostic to how they invest, so long as they make money. Uh, so we have to show that investment in energy efficiency, in clean energy, in water, in waste to value, sustainable agriculture, other environmental products and services can be tremendously successful business. And I'm so grateful to have been guided to Carter Bales, um, with whom I share this theory of change. Uh, as it turns out, he was building a private equity firm around this theory, New World Capital Group, and it really has been an honor for me to have been part of New World these past four years as it invests in environmental opportunities because we um, believe that they offer superior returns. So New World's investment thesis really taps into the growing reality of businesses 
that are transitioning toward a more resource-efficient and cleaner economy, and that's being driven by resource constraints and volatility and continuing high levels of pollution and waste. Wow. Well, that's such a fascinating evolution and, and something you said um, that really struck me about the Children to Children project is, um, you know, if there were a few words that could sum up the the spirit of the BART MBA in sustainability, it's helping businesses move from me to we. So as, as you say for children, um, we say the same thing for businesses, and that seems to be a, an overriding theme of your work. Um, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about your nonprofit um, world with Children to Children early on, and you grew that organization into a national organization, and then you led it, uh, led it to a successful merger, which is something often quite challenging in the nonprofit world. I've, I've participated in one of those and, um, you know, has has probably very similar challenges to the for-profit world, but some others in addition. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the mission of that merger and, and the business goals and, and how you were able to bring that about and, and what it's resulted in today? Well, sure. So I I like to be very entrepreneurial and innovative in my approach to business. Uh, and I also strongly believe that any not-for-profit needs to be run as though it is a sustainable business. Uh, and the business model for our society currently is based on constant growth. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is not the topic of the conversation today, but it's a fascinating one. But in our world, there really is no stasis. And so Children for Children was constantly being approached about expanding to other cities and other states. Um, so we used a consultant uh, and had a number of meetings internally uh, over a period of time to try to figure out what the best way to do this might be. Uh, and the conclusion was to either build our own bricks and mortar operations, which would be a five-year endeavor pretty much everywhere, and the money would need, would need to be going to infrastructure rather than to the programs themselves. And that's really the only thing that mattered uh, for me and for the other folks who were involved with Children for Children. Uh, and so the other alternative was a deep partnership with another organization that had boots on the ground in, in, a, in these other places. So it happened that there was another organization with which we'd been discussing how we could work together. Um, they did not have a youth service component, but um, very, very uh, active with regard to uh, adult volunteering. And that group, uh, Hands on America, had grassroots locations around the country. Uh, and there is always a lot of talk, as you're saying, about nonprofits combining efforts uh, because it seems like there are a lot of duplicative approaches to the same problems, but it rarely happens. Uh, I'm a corporate lawyer with a mergers and acquisitions background, and so I really was intrigued by that and um, and open to trying it. Uh, and so after Hands-On ended up ironically finishing its own merger with Points of Light, uh, we entered into a deep partnership with them, which has resulted in Generation On. It's their youth service arm. And this combination allowed what was a New York-based organization uh, to reach children across the nation and increasingly internationally to engage uh, in service both through their schools and individually or with their families. Uh, and as you mentioned, it is, it is a challenging effort because I think um, as in the for-profit world, each, each organization brings its own culture and I think what allowed us to navigate it was keeping a constant eye on what the mission was. And I think the fact that we um, were both, both, both um, hands-on points of light and children for children was very clear and very dedicated 
to the idea of engaging kids from an early age uh, in this volunteering and service and reaching kids from all different parts of of, um, society. And that kind of continuing to go back and back and back to what our mission was allowed us to navigate when we came to each of the the different points along the way that we struggled with as a um as an institution children for children having been very grassroots um very much working with kids being engaged in trying to develop programs in a way that um was very different from a more corporate model uh, a more grown up um sophisticated kind of model that um, the hands-on points of light group was coming from, uh, and so we just we just worked uh, through each one until we we um, got to the next point. And uh, it's been very exciting for me uh, to be able to watch Generation On. I think take this to another level. Uh, for me, as a founder who had an idea, to me the idea is only as good as it survives any one person or initial group and is able to live and breathe and grow on its own. And so I'm just very grateful um, that this seems to have happened with the, the mission of Generation On and hope it continues to grow and grow and grow. Right now, if somebody wanted to get involved with Generation On, how, would you? Um, is it? Do they operate on the ground in all different localities? Is it a national-based website? What, how do you recommend we follow up with that? There's a. It's there's. You can go to generationon.org, and uh, yes, there are things that are happening on the ground. There are things that happen through uh, school curricula. Uh, there are individual events that happen that you can tap tap. Um, onto that you can execute on your own. So the best place to start is to go to that website and see what's available. Uh, There's also a telephone number, and you can call up and talk to staff. But but the easiest way, I think, really is to start with the website. Great. Great. So you, you worked on building community in the nonprofit sector, and you touched on a little bit um, about the private sector, and then in the public sector as well you've done work. So how do those three sectors differ in terms of your goals of, of building community? Can you just talk a little bit about your the, the differences in those experiences? I think for, for people on this call who may be in our program or graduating soon, um, you know, we're all looking at these different sectors to see where we can make an impact. I, I, I'd love to get your input on that. Um, well, what I would say is that I think it is particularly um, helpful uh, to go between these different, I think it's very healthy to go between the different uh, pieces, the nonprofit, for-profit, and public, um, to be able to experience them because each one um, has certain levers that allows them to be able to add to achieving a particular goal, whether it's the environment or some other goal. And so um, what you do is you, you learn what the what those levers are when you participate in them in a way that you cannot understand when you are uh, outside and trying just to work with them. So I think it really, um, if if one has the the opportunity to be able to um, experience these different sectors, then I think that is um, that is something that really would help them expand as a professional and be more effective in their their goals. Um, I think what's important is keeping in mind what your personal um, goal is. Um, I I am very purpose driven. Uh, Some people are driven more by uh, economic return and and more separating their work life perhaps from their their personal life and pursuit of interest that way. Um, For me, it's great to be able to have economic success, but but I need to have purpose as a part of what I'm doing. 
Um, and so I think when you have that that uh, kind of unifying understanding of yourself, then you can go and pursue your career where uh, you think you can best achieve what your personal objectives are. And I think that's help, that helps you choose whether non-pro- non-profit, for-profit, um, government. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, you know, BARD has a combined program, actually, that's, that combines policy and MBA. So <clears throat> that's a good way to get experience in both, too. Um, you know, and, and in terms of your purpose-driven work, um, as a woman, you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that you worked worked at a woman-owned hedge fund. And I know one of the reasons I chose to do the program at BARD is, as a woman, I've always been somewhat intimidated by the world of business and finance. And um, I think, you know, a woman-owned hedge fund almost sounds like an oxymoron. So I'd love to know um, what your experience was like with that and, you know, many women of our generation who struggle with financial literacy, financial empowerment, um, what were the objectives of of the hedge fund and and how did women react to it when you asked them to join? Well, the the hedge fund itself was a kind of very, it was a value-oriented fund. Um, I had hoped to do some green investing there. It was when uh, the public markets uh, had some really interesting opportunities. Uh, If anything, it was a bit frothy, I would say, some solar companies and others. I started work on October 1 of 2008, uh, which some might recall was kind of the the beginning of this, uh, (laughs) the the great, uh, I guess, recession or whatever you want to call it, where um, things, the financial world as we knew it uh, kind of changed uh, dramatically. So the green of mine uh, kind of goal there went on hold and I started looking at other routes for that uh, and remained uh, privileged to join that firm so that I could work with uh, Karen Feinerman uh, on issues relating not just getting people investing in that firm, but also more broadly educating women about finance and using their financial power. Um, The story of Karen's firm is interesting um, because she uh, had a male partner, Jeffrey Schwartz, who was, uh, in fact, very forward-looking in deciding to join with Karen to to launch the firm in the first place. And he consistently um, has promoted her talents and encouraged her career. And uh, he is a senior person uh, in his uh, experience in the industry. And uh, he is the one who really put her forward to to become uh, the lead at the firm. And the industry itself, as you're talking about, um, not just hedge funds, but the the private equity world as well, uh, remains heavily dominated by men. You've seen the stories coming out of Silicon Valley uh, in the, the exciting companies there. There are still enormous, enormous... Um, challenges i think for for women in in the space even though a number of strides have been made uh so karen and i did devote a great deal of time to um talking with women about finance and uh trying to help them own their financial power and i think the reasons why women aren't more engaged is really complex. It's very ingrained in um, societal expectations and training that require a great deal of awareness and intention, I believe, to shift. Even in today's more um, open world that, in theory, is is more flat and and certainly there are uh, opportunities for, for women to and, and a need for women to uh, participate fully in their financial selves. 
Um, some of the women with whom we worked were extremely sophisticated investors. Uh, I could learn from them. A number of others were just beginning on their journey and um, learning how to take ownership and not feeling like they had a choice. And I think that's where a lot of us somehow get tripped up with this message that um, we we don't need to own our financial power and that someone else can do it and, and will do it for us. And at the end of the day, uh, it's up to us. And if you look at the statistics for um, uh, where poverty lies among uh the older population, it is heavily skewed towards women, and um, there are, you know, death, disease, and divorce happen to a substantial uh, majority of women um, by the time they reach a, a very early age, somewhere between in their 40s and 50s. Uh, I think I think the statistic is over 60 percent, and so. The, the notion that we can rely upon someone else to make these decisions for us is is really false, and it leaves women in a terrible predicament when they are forced by circumstance to to own their own finances, and it puts them at a real disadvantage. So um, I think the message for the younger generation is that... Um, they need to focus on investing right out of, of school and not just uh, on things. Honestly, the statistics show that that um, young women coming out put more of their resources in things like clothing uh, that have no, uh, no long-term value. They actually, um, you know, reduce in value as soon as, as, soon as you wear them. Um, whereas men tend to invest in things that can increase in value over time, uh, whether it's the apartment, whether it is uh, in in different um, savings accounts or investment accounts. So I really think that there is a shift that needs to happen among women starting starting very early. Uh, so I'm glad that you are as focused on the topic uh, and are speaking about it more broadly uh, to help deliver that message. Yes, yeah, so fascinating. As as the mother of two young adult daughters um, and with many friends in the category that you were talking about, death, disease, and divorce, I can relate so much to everything you're saying. And I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity for social enterprise uh, targeted at both of those populations ongoing. So really, really important um, topic that you bring up. Um, I'm going to turn the conversation now uh, to what you're doing currently at New World Capital and and just ask you, you know, you touched a little bit on the theory of change at New World with driving, you know, capital into the markets for um, renewable energy, et cetera, and, and environmental opportunities. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works, um, how you are actually leveraging the capital in service of the environment? Well, to to go back to that theory of change, the, the idea is to attract the agnostic um, money that really is just looking for, for ways to increase and, and make a profit, uh, and it really doesn't matter where they're investing. So... Um, the the theory of change that that we're putting forth is to be, and this is not what we talk about, but this is the underlying kind of, I think, um, why why our approach is is the way that it is, and how we do not present ourselves as an impact firm, because the perception by many is that this means that um, we would settle for concessionary returns. Uh, and that is not what we are willing to do. And we feel like we have to show superior returns in order to attract the larger pools of capital that are really needed uh, to be able to finance the the shift to a clean economy. And so 
what we do is we focus on investing in good companies and good projects that we think are um, highly attractive uh, as a business proposition. Um, by nature of our sector of environmental opportunities, which is focusing on clean energy, energy efficiency, water, waste to value, uh, environmental products and services, uh, every dollar that we are investing in companies and projects has impact. Uh, and what we like to call them are societal co-benefits but that in no way um, is meant to take away from the, the financial story, which is the, the basis on which we are investing in these different companies and projects. So, um, again, while New World is successful, that is what we believe is going to drive that more private agnostic capital into the sector that then will shift us to the clean economy. So every dollar we're investing, um, we are kind of leveraging that uh, to bring this uh, by a lot, to be able to bring these additional enormous amounts of capital that are needed in the space. And do you see more money flowing into your type of investment um, with with the you know the current news about coal companies going under and oil companies losing profits, is it is that driving more investment to the environmental sector? Um, it's interesting. I think that um, it's making some of the the larger and and folks who have been focused more on those industries maybe um, look more deeply at the alternatives and. Uh, seeing if there's a way to incorporate those. I think there's been a huge um, uh, kind of pushback for the this whole kind of clean economy um, sector, if you will, as a threat to the last dollar that can be made in these traditional investments. Uh, you see some of the utilities. That model is being uh, completely reshaped. And I think some of the um, some of them have started to realize that either uh, like what's happening with coal, if they don't evolve, that um, that they will die, uh, or as they know themselves, because their models for being able to uh, generate revenues are are changing, and so. Like it or not, I think that there is more attention being given to the space. I think that um, independently of having people turn away so much, I think they're being attracted to the successes that we're seeing. Um, and these are new markets, so they are not going to be 100% smooth. They're going to be dips and they're going to be companies that don't succeed, and I'm thinking particularly of solar um, right now because that is so high profile. Um, but the trajectory and where we're going um, is very much upward. And uh, so we have to pick well, uh, look at how companies, just like we would make an investment in any other company, look at which ones are run well, look at ones that um, are sophisticated, uh, in how they view the markets and um, how they're growing their business and invest in the good companies there. So you guys, New World has a, a dual investment strategy. There's growth investments and infrastructure investments. And I, I, maybe we can just talk about both briefly. Um, you know, I, I guess from what you're talking about, the growth portfolio might have a lot more volati volatility. Mm -hmm. How do you choose those investments, and, and, and how, how do you look at those companies and determine which ones you think are going to be the winners? Right, right. So, um, you know, just, just to level set over the, the spectrum in, I guess, private equity, you start with your venture firms where you have a lot of technology risk as well as business scaling risk. Uh, and then you move into uh, growth, sort of the 
lower middle market, middle market, um, where there you've got growing companies and growing markets, so they're facing a lot of the business scaling risk, but that um, they know that they have a product or service that is that works and is scalable. So they need the financing to be able to do that. They also need the management expertise to do that. Uh, then you have the larger, uh, more established companies that have access to the more traditional financial markets, and then you have buyouts and, and other uh, pieces. But the um, place where, and then we've got infrastructure and project finance, which is a kind of a, a different a different but related animal. Um, so where where New World focuses is on the growing companies and growing markets. Uh, that sector over time uh, has proven generally to be kind of the most consistently um, kind of best performing places on that spectrum. So um, from an impact point of view and as and then as an investment point of view, um, we feel like that's kind of the superior sort of starting point um, because you can realize more consistently um, the the kind of, of uh, outside financial returns that, that um, will attract the outside capital. Um, from an impact point of view, uh, you're taking products and services that really can um, move the needle on climate and helping them scale so that they become part of the mainstream economy. Um, you, you hear a lot of talk about research and development and a lot of uh, President Obama's focus is, is uh, capital, in putting capital into research and development. And you can always use new ideas. I think Bill Gates similarly is focusing on this research and development. Um, as I said, you can always use and you need new ideas. But we have so much that has been developed, some of it dating back to uh, reaction to the 1970s and the, in, and the uh, energy crisis then, um, that really um, can be put to work right now um, and make a huge difference. And so both from an impact point of view and a financial uh, return point of view, that's why New World is focused on that growth piece. Um, we have a very specialized, uh, highly experienced team uh, that has expertise in this environmental opportunities sector. And so uh, a kind of natural uh, outgrowth of that is that um, when we're investing in the growing companies and growing markets, we're actually investing in the companies, in equity in the companies. Um, with the infrastructure project finance, what's happening is um, that opportunities are in available to the private sector that um, were largely taken care of by governments at various points when there was more money to build out, um, whether it was the more traditional roads, bridges, um, that type of thing. Uh, but in today's world, the government really doesn't have that kind of of uh, capital to be able to invest. So this has opened up whole new opportunities, um, both on the traditional side and in this kind of newer alternative space as well, to be able to invest in infrastructure build-out. Uh, so what you're seeing is companies that are um, developing uh, different renewable build-outs or energy efficiency in a project model. And so for that, um, New World or other companies invest in the projects themselves. Uh, that tends to be more risk mitigated. It's part of uh, real assets. Uh, if you're thinking of asset classes um, in most people's minds, and uh, it's because the the return is is uh, calibrated to be commensurate with risk. And so, in private in the um, growth equity, you tend to have uh, more risk. Venture, you have even more risk. Um, 
and so with the the project finance, uh, you try to um, invest in a stage and uh, with the kinds of counterparties that are um, are strong uh, in technologies that have been established, and so the you can get very attractive returns in that space, um, but it is more risk mitigated uh, if you have the right expertise to be able to, to structure the transactions uh, in such a way to take advantage of that. So, so New World kind of brings together uh, the, under the umbrella of our expertise the ability to structure things both uh, as as company growth investments. Uh, or as uh, project finance. Uh, so they're just very complementary. Yeah, interesting strategy because I would imagine that the infrastructure investments can help smooth out a little bit the, some of the volatility that the growth might present. Um, but I, I'm also particularly interested in um, learning more about one of your investments, and I think, I'm not even sure which category this falls into, um, Posigen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a business model for um, putting solar on low and moderate residential neighborhood rooftops. And I I really am intrigued by the social mission behind Posigen because of the concern that we hear that, you know, wealthy people are able to buy into solar power and therefore save money on their electricity while the lower-income folks could end up paying more for their electricity because they are stuck on the grid. So um, why did you choose Posigen, and, and what what is their business model that makes that work for them? Well, it's a, Posigen is one of our growth investments, and um, we picked it because uh, it is a company that um, is operating in um, a market that has largely been untapped, uh, and it is growing. It has developed a model um, that I, there, I don't know of any other companies that really have been able to um, to kind of crack the market. And they um, have found a way uh, to um, produce sort of a standardized package uh, that also includes energy efficiency as well as solar, and um, are able to offer this to uh, the community through um, a f- financing and be able to recognize savings from day one. And so I don't think that, that you would be looking at this as um, just because of the community that it is targeting. It is really because um, it's a it's a great business, um, and it is it's serving a market that um, that is is pretty wide open right now. So we f- we think it's very very exciting place to be. Uh, the company started in Louisiana, and um, has been invited and come up to to operate in Connecticut and New York, and so it is starting out up outside the Albany area and um, is going to be going to Rochester and a number of other communities. And uh, one of the things that is fascinating about it is that um, the way it is um, sourcing its its customers is largely through um, community organizations and word of mouth. Um, So the customer acquisition piece of this model is very important. And um, they have figured out a way that um, that really uh, is very low cost compared to customer acquisition from some of the the other large solar installers. So uh, it's a it's been a very well run, uh, interesting company, and we're very excited to be working with them. And do you know, like, is is part of their business model, and maybe the reason why they're up in our area, Connecticut and New York, do they get more um, like renewable energy credits or incentives from um, these two states than they they do in other places? Do you know, like, what's driving them to this area in particular? 
Um, well, in part, they were invited to come here because of the concern that you were talking about, which is that um, the appearance is that those who are more um, affluent are being able to buy the solar panel, um, the solar power, while the lower income folks have been, in effect, subsidizing this. And so this is very attractive um, as a way of being able to make this accessible for a whole other economic um, part of our community. And so, yes, there are different subsidies uh, and and um, and different pieces of the uh, work environment to make it attractive for this company to to go to Connecticut and New York uh, as a as sort of next places to grow. Uh, it's planning to grow out other places as well, and each each state has a has differences. So um, it's really looking at um, their cost structure, uh, labor, and and all of the pieces, and seeing where it makes sense for them to expand next. Yeah, really interesting company for maybe one of, one of my classmates to study. I think it's a fascinating model. So I just I want to be mindful of our time, uh, but I did want to ask you um, just a little bit more about, you know, your investments in beyond the renewables, the solar power. Um, where do the energy services that you invest in, where do they fit into the opportunities? Like how do you choose a company that's providing energy services and, and what types of services do you look for? Where do, you, where do you see opportunities there? Um, well, we had an investment. It's not so much services as it is a um, it's a component for the balance of systems for for solar installations. Um, invested in a company, it's called Solar Edge, and uh, they make an optimizer and inverter system. So when you have solar panels, in order to um, get them onto the the grid to be able to take the power off of the individual panels and convert it from DC to AC, which is what um, we currently use in this this country, um, you need an inverter to do that. Um, the optimizer piece that uh, Solar Edge has actually allows it to boost sort of DC to DC before it then converts to AC. Um, so we have um, in this the lower cost option there are string inverters, uh, and that is something that um, has issues with uh, if the sun shades on one panel then the other panels all uh, are affected, kind of like a Christmas tree light bulb I like to think of, that when one goes out, it affects the whole, the whole line. Um, and then there, there is a, a, a different but more costly level uh, that actually allows for um, the panels, each, each panel to kind of operate at its, at its maximum level. Uh, and so those are called microinverters. And what um, what Solar Edge was able to do is to produce the microinverter uh, benefits with the cost much closer to what the string inverters are. They we invested in them. They went public. Um, I think it was about six months after we invested, uh, and. Uh, since then, they have announced a third generation that is a smaller um, optimizer and inverter system, so they use fewer materials in them, and so they are less costly, and uh, I think they really have changed the landscape and um, ultimately helped bringing down the cost of the balance of systems, which is allowing the solar to be more competitive. Uh, in the space, so that's an example of where it's not that's not an installation business, but it's something that um, is is part of the system that is is incrementally um, 
very additive. So that is one kind of investment. Another investment that we made was really an energy efficiency focus was in an an air conditioning system that uh, did not use a compressor and could save up to uh, a new technology. It's it's an indirect evaporative cooling with staging, and they could save uh, between... 40 and 90% of your um, energy that is used to power air conditioning. And they also can can uh, have a, a way of combining with an ERV, an, an energy recovery ventilator system that um, allows it to, uh, say, in the northeast work for heat as well as um, cooling. Uh, so year-round you can get the benefits of that. So there are just many there there are many many things out there when you um, start to look that are very interesting and are are very attractive. Yeah, I mean, what this is great. These two kind of tech examples. What what do you think about um, like so-called transitional technologies that um, solve more thorny near-term problems, like that aren't necessarily. 100% renewable, but things like clean fracking or, you know, hybrid vehicles, fuel cells. What kind of an attitude does does, does your investment firm take to those kinds of technologies? Um, they they are they would be something that we would look at. You know, combined heat and power would be something on the the project finance side that we would look at. Um, the with respect to the fracking. Um, we we look we um have not you know cleaning water and and other pieces that can make that better um we really have not seen the businesses yet that we would invest in um as a as a as a business investment um or or the technology isn't where we think it should be so there we look at those um, but we are very careful about what we invest in. Um, the fuel cells, I, we have a chief technology officer. He's a physicist by training, and um, his job really is to um, kind of assess the the different technologies, uh, make sure we don't take a technology risk. Uh, but he has a background very strong from GE, where uh, he spent a lot a lot of time working on their solid oxide fuel cell program, and was also head of their disruptive technologies unit. So um, things like fuel cells, he's been looking at a long, long time, and um, we we keep waiting to see something that is really uh, going to get us excited and feel and that we feel like is scalable. There are a lot of interesting things yet there, but they're not quite there yet, we don't believe, but we watch everything um, and and are starting to see some, some really interesting things develop where um, where the nut hasn't been cracked yet. Yeah, and so we've been talking about the investment side, but then on the other side, when you look at renewables, it's it's who are the perfect customers for these kinds of projects, and we often at this point think of, you know, colleges, private schools, municipal governments, and hospitals that are able to make the kinds of long-term commitments, although those commitments are getting shorter now for solar, um, but, that you know, they have endowments or can make a bond or uh, have a tax base to draw funding from. And and that brings us to yet another one of your many endeavors. You're you're an advisor advisor to the Sustainable Endowment Institute, and I had sort of heard of this before we talked. But I, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about um, what the Sustainable Endowment Institute is and and what their work is. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get that, just to so it's it's not just solar. You reference other renewables as well. Um, and things that are energy efficiency can be lower-hanging fruit that can actually bring um, as much as solar. Um, geothermal heat pumps are, are an example of a technology that's well-proven, uh, can provide a lot, a lot of benefit, uh, can be 
too expensive and still working on how to get the financing piece of that to to work uh, as well as it works in solar. Um, but, you know, things, energy efficiency things can be, you know, uh, making sure that your envelope is tighter, um, you know, better windows, sealing around the windows, uh, weather stripping, things like that. So um, it tends to be overlooked because I think it's not as sexy as solar. But for all of these different um, uh, institutions out there, um, to have a program in place where they can um, assess what their different uh, areas are where they can improve is the first step. And then to how to finance the change there is the second. Uh, and between municipalities and, say, a private university, they're very different. Say so one's getting government finance and another is getting um, through an endowment, say. So the Sustainable Endowments Institute started uh, really working with uh, colleges and universities uh, to be able to create uh, a kind of a revolving loan facility that would pay back as it made, it would take a project and do it, and then the savings from that project would pay back the loan. And then once that project was done, they could then recycle that money and they can use it somewhere else. So um, if you go onto their website, the sustainableendowments.org website, uh, you, they have a tool called GRIT that you can use to assess. Uh, and uh, they can tell you more about how your um, institution can get more involved there. Um, for municipalities and other groups, there's some interesting things happening with folks who are trying to get around the procurement, um, slowness and bureaucracy involved there. Uh, and actually, uh, I know one company that sort of has a model that allows uh, these institutions to shift from being a um, kind of a capital uh, expenditure to an operational expenditure, which is very helpful for their bottom lines. Uh, so a lot of creative options out there. Uh, and and you just have to kind of, if you're a person who's sitting in one of these institutions and wants to see it happen, I think uh, that the more your voice is heard, the, the more the institution can um, back it by, say, having a sustainability officer in place who's really looking seriously at what can be done, uh, there's a lot of progress that could be made. Yeah, we're seeing that certainly happening on a lot of college campuses right now, which is exciting. Right. We are getting to the top of the hour, so but I just want to ask you, do you, would you be able to go over by about three minutes if I ask you two more quick questions? <laughs> sure. Okay, because I really wanted to get in here something that I really that I just learned about from you yesterday that you have another um, another project called New York Makers, and it's fascinating to me because, as we said, it, it really does involve sustainability, building community, but on a whole other level, and I'd love it if you could just talk about that a little bit. Um, thank you. It's something that um, we're very excited about. So um, New York Makers and uh, is a digital marketplace for the state. Uh, with a companion magazine that we call New York States of Mind um, that is the first of its kind that we know of. It's, a, that is, it's private and is um, a way for folks to access uh, some really, really terrific products that are um, being made by New York makers. And so uh, we want to make them accessible to a larger audience. Um, this goes to the sustainable community idea of uh, expanding the audience that, um, that has access to these products. And um, also from a, a statewide point of view, um, building out community there. 
uh, learning about things that are happening in other parts of the state. Um, we focus the content of the magazine on uh, the makers as well as the their local world that they're living in and um, tell their stories and uh, hope that over time uh, we we really will build a following of folks who um, who appreciate the quality and the creativity and uh, the the um, I guess local nature of these products um, but in a in a somewhat broader sense of um, what local is because they're um, in different parts of the state, not just in within one region, serving one region. Uh, and interestingly, a lot of the folks who uh, have been ordering are actually out of state and um, seem to have some New York ties. So I think this uh, can fill a space for those who, for one reason or another, are living somewhere else. Maybe they had to move for a job or um, came from out of state to study here and now live someone else, somewhere else to have a contact and connect back with New York because it kind of gets in your system. Well, I, I want to say it's a really beautiful site. You guys are Great job. The photography is gorgeous. The storytelling is fabulous. So I, I was really excited when you pointed me to it. Um, Thanks. Let's have time for a, a final question. And that is, you know, as someone who has worked in many sectors of sustainable business, do you have career advice that you might want to offer to um, those of us who are about to graduate with an MBA in sustainability? What, you know, what what would be your big takeaway um, in terms of pointing us in our various directions? Well, I guess first off, I want to congratulate you on being one of those. Um, I think it is very exciting um, to have the um, ability to get an MBA in sustainability, and I think that is going to continue to propel us forward uh, because we've got so many folks who are coming out of school who want to focus on this area. Um, I think that you can you can pursue any of the different uh, sectors with that training. Um, I think you uh, it's in part going to be driven opportunistically, but I do think that um, that you should start out with something that that um, feels very interesting. And I hope that as you move forward in your career, you will take the opportunity, seek it out if it's not readily apparent, um, to explore some of the different sectors if you can um, or find ways to work deeply with them because I do think that there is something um, bigger than um, each individual one when all are kind of working together. Yeah, that's that's what it is, and I, I know for myself anyway, I get excited about so many different opportunities. Narrowing the field of focus tends to be the challenge. But right. I, you know, I, I'm afraid our time is up. I could keep talking with you for hours because this is a fascinating conversation, but I really want to thank you so much, Silda, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, you know, your career spanning from engaging kids in giving back to their community at an early age to providing opportunities for investors to make money through clean energy, um, to developing a marketing platform for local New York State makers. I, I think it's just so inspiring to see that you have had that diversity and continue to, um, you know, to follow all of these things that all add up to um, a sustainable community. And um, so I want to thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm going to turn it back over to Jeff um, for some final words. All right. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, we knew there was going to be so much to talk about that it was going to be very difficult to uh, fit it all into an hour. And I'd also like to thank you so much, uh, Silda Wall-Spitzer, for joining us. And Amy, thank you for leading such a rich conversation about capital and renewable energy and purpose-driven work and all those uh, various things in the sustainability sector that are interesting to us that I'm I'm very much the same way where I'm distracted by you know, renewable energy or, you know, whatever whatever exciting new thing is coming down the line. 
And uh, it was great to hear about the sustainable capital, uh, but also, you know, hearing some some very uh, detailed descriptions of solar inverters and new refrigeration technology. So really just a great call. And um, I also really liked the conversation you both had about um, getting more women involved into into the boys club. And I think in, in all of these industries, uh, diversity is a key component to a long-term equitable and sustainable economy. So with that, join us next Friday, May 6th, when we dive deeper into diversity. We're going to be speaking with Latrice Ross, who is Manager of Diversity and Inclusion for Macy's Systems and Technology. So I'm Jeff Leatherwood on behalf of the BARD MBA in Sustainability. Thank you for joining us on Sustainable Business Friday and have a fantastic weekend.